you got a Bible with you, get to Ephesians 2. That's where we're going to be today. I am not who I used to be. By God's grace alone, I've been saved and redeemed from the power and the penalty of sin. Apart from God's saving grace, before I trusted in Jesus for my salvation, I was ruled by my own flesh. I was conforming to the patterns of this world. I was believing the lies of my spiritual enemy. I was destined for an eternity separate from the love and grace of my creator, but God. By grace alone, he brought people into my life to show me what it meant to follow Jesus, who told me the truth of the gospel and how Jesus had died for my sin, and through faith alone in him, I could be saved. I could be given the gift of eternal life, and I believed, meaning I transferred my trust away from me and on to Jesus, for only he is able to save, only he is able to give that gift of eternal life. And by the grace of God, the core of who I am was changed. Before my life was rooted in sin and self, now it is rooted in Christ, anchored to Him. And yes, I still have remaining sin in my life, but the Lord is faithful to finish what He has begun in me. I'm not who I used to be, and so many of you could declare the same truth about your own life. There's a sequence to every believer in Christ's life, common chapters in everyone's stories and testimonies. They go like this, before, but God, and then after. The before I met Jesus and trusted in him, that chapter of my life, then the but God chapter, here's how he interrupted my life, here's how he saved me, and then how he is changing me, how he has changed me, how he's growing me up in him. You could say it this way, who we were apart from the saving and transforming grace of God, but then God, here's how his mercy and grace intersected my life. And then here's who I am now. Who we were, but God, and who we are now. For those of you who are believers in Christ, we all have a, a variety of testimonies. But those three chapters in, uh, are in each of our stories. Who we were, but God, and who we are now. We see that pattern played out in Scripture. We see it in, in Paul's life. We see it in Peter's life. And, and Paul's going to follow that pattern here in Ephesians 2, in these 22 verses. In the first 10 verses, they're focused on the individual in, in many ways. How an individual person comes to faith in Christ. The, the final 12 verses then build off that and help us see that not only does the gospel of God's grace reconcile us to the Lord, but it reconciles us to one another. It brings saved people into a new family. In Christ, believers are given a new identity, both individually and together, in the family. The Lord is not just saving persons. He's, he's saving a people, creating in him a people who, according to 1 Peter 2, are called out of darkness, a people for his own possession called out of darkness, and for the rest of their lives will declare the one who called them out and brought them into marvelous light. Because at one point, apart from his grace, in that before faith in Jesus chapter, we were not a people. But now, because of his mercy and grace, believers are now God's people living for his praise and glory alone. Some of you here don't trust in Jesus yet. You're not here by accident. The Lord Jesus wants to save you. He wants to give you new life in Him. And I pray that as we read Ephesians 2, as we talk through this, that, it, that you might respond to the, 
the voice of the Lord through his living and active word. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, a church plant. He planted the church. Acts 19 tells that story. And, and we learned that when the church started, the Lord was saving people from both a Jewish background and a Gentile background. And historically, for centuries, these two groups of people don't associate with one another. But that's what they were. That's who they were. They've been now changed and continue to be changed by the grace of God. And now in Christ, they are brought together. Paul's communicating in this letter that the church is, is not an institution. The church of Jesus Christ is a family. It's a body. It's a holy and living temple that is being built up and built together. So may the same be said of us as a church, Cross Point Community Church, that we are being built up in the Lord and built together in the Lord for His glory. So verses 1 through 3, they describe to, to us who we were before faith in Jesus, that chapter in our lives. And notice the past tense that Paul writes with here. It, it, and he writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air of the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in all fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were, by nature, children under wrath, as others were also. For the believer in Christ, this is who we were. Paul began this letter in, in Ephesians 1. He, he addresses the letter, and he says this, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Faithful saints in Christ Jesus. This is who believers are now. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. Does that mean that we are supposed to get really good at hiding our sin and keep the dark in the dark and try to expose what's good in us to the, to the public? No, of course not. God's grace is not a license to continue in sin. We are saved by grace and not by works. So, so we can walk in the light of His goodness and His holiness. So while we all have remaining sin, none of us are perfect yet in Christ and won't be this side of heaven. We are not who we once were, though. When we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the righteousness of Him. Our sin is covered by His blood. We are given a new identity in Christ that is now holy, righteous, and clean, washed of shame and condemnation and guilt. But before we gave our lives to Christ, we were not holy, righteous, and clean. Paul tells us here we were dead in our sin, that we were disobedient to the Lord and his, his word and his ways. We were not washed, but rather we were covered in shame, guilt, and condemnation. We were walking according to, and Paul lists three areas here. The first is we were walking in the ways of the world. We were following the patterns of culture. If the world was saying, hey, make sure you look out for yourself. Make sure you look out for number one. Hey, the goal of life is to get everybody to serve you. Hey, the goal of life is to accumulate the most amount of money, the most amount of possessions, the most amount of toys before you die. Well, we were following in those ways. We were also walking in the ways of the devil, he says. And Jesus tells us in John 8, 44, that the native language of our spiritual enemy is that of lies. 
And so since Genesis 3, the devil has been whispering and getting us to, he's, he's been asking this question, did God really say? Did, did God really say? Ever since Genesis 3, he's wanting us to question the Lord's goodness and his holiness. The devil himself is disobedient and rebellious, and his goal is to lead other people in that same way, to be disobedient and rebellious to a good and loving Father who has our best interests in mind. And finally, we were walking in the ways of our flesh. Our flesh simply means our fallen sin nature. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were fully committed to our own selfish, self-centered, short-term desires. Verse 1 says again, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the sobering reality of life apart from faith in Jesus is that we were walking in the ways of the world, the devil, our own flesh, which was leading to sin. And the Bible tells us that sin separates. The result of it is death. And death leads to separation. Brothers and sisters, we were born separated from our Creator. We were born with an identity rooted in sin and self apart from our Savior, and we were destined to spend this life and eternity separated from His grace, His love, but God. Verse 4. For the believer, that is who we were. It's past tense. Now for those who have those of you who have yet to put your faith in Jesus, this is not just your past tense, this is your present day reality. You're still dead in your sin. You're, you're still in need of a spiritual resurrection. You're still in need of a Savior. And hear this, Jesus is that Savior. He is that soul-sufficient, all-sufficient, all-powerful, only true Savior. And His call continues to be to people, His call continues to be, come follow me. Drop what you're holding on to, come follow me. Trust in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. So verses 1 through 3 paint a picture of, of death, a seemingly hopeless situation, but God. The focus of this passage now shifts from the chapter of who we were to the Lord himself. It is as if our eyes are downward in death, and the, and the Spirit, through his living and active word, grabs hold of our face and says, no, 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 look up. See the Lord. Be reminded of who the Lord is. See how good He is. He saw us in our hopeless situation, our rebellion, our strain, our wandering, and His heart was that we would not remain spiritually dead and separated, but rather we'd be joined. Verses 4-10, through 10, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He has prepared in advance for us to do. So what do we learn about the Lord in that section of Scripture? We learn that He is rich in mercy. Meaning in Christ, He does not 
give us what we deserve. Verse, four, verse 3 tells us that we were born deserving of wrath and judgment. Well, through faith in Christ, we are no longer objects or children of wrath. He does not give us what we deserve. And on top of that, we learn that the Lord is grace, meaning he gave us what we do not deserve. It wasn't just that in Christ the Father withheld his wrath, but rather he also made us alive. He saved us. He brought us close. Think of the prodigal son story in Luke 15. A party is thrown when the son returns home. The fattened calf is killed. A a robe is brought out. A, A ring is brought out. All of which the son does not deserve, but the father gave. And why does the father give? We learn that it was his great love that he has for his created people that compelled him to give of his son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. So the son would bear the wrath sin upon that cross. The Son would bear the weight of our sin, even though He was sinless. For all the times, past, present, and future, that we had walked in the ways of the world, or believed the lies of the enemy, or walked according to our own flesh, the Son would give of Himself upon the cross. The Son would substitute Himself in our place, so that through His death, we might find abundant and eternal life. In Christ, we experience the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us. We were dead in our sin, but now we've been made alive in Christ. We we are not who we used to be. Just as Jesus was raised on the third day, we too are raised to a new life, a new identity, new spirit put within us. Before, we we were united to our flesh and the patterns of this world and, and the devil. Now we are united and joined to Christ, and it's all by grace, all through faith, not by works. So for those of you who don't trust in Jesus yet as Lord and Savior, the way you unite to Him is not through works. For instance, not trying to do a lot of good or avoid bad or however you would define those things. No, we unite ourselves to Christ through faith alone, not through works. Because if it was through works, on the days we struggle with sin, we'd assume we're kicked out of the family. And on the days we'd nail it, we'd puff up with self-righteous pride. We're saved by grace and through faith. God's gift to us, salvation is a gift that we receive. Humbly admitting our need for our Savior, asking Jesus to save us, and beginning to follow Him then from that day forward as Lord of our life. And then verse 10, one of my favorite verses in all Scripture For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The Christian life is not just being saved from eternal wrath. It's also being saved to a new life and saved for good works. Do you see how good and active the Lord is? This is why that middle chapter of our testimonies is called, But God. Because the Lord made a way for salvation when there, when there was no way. By grace alone, through faith alone, He reconciles us to Himself, who we were, and then but God, and who we are now. And in verses 11 through 22, we continue to get a picture of who we are now in Christ. By grace alone, we're joined to Him, and we are joined to one another. And we'll see the similar pattern 
here at the second half of Ephesians 2. In the first 10 verses, it was separation, and then reconciliation, and then now united in Christ. We'll see that same reality as it relates to our relationships with one another in the community, that once we were separated, now we've been reconciled, and now we've been joined not only to Him, but united to one another. Our vertical relationship to Christ shapes our horizontal lives. As followers of Jesus, we grow into Him over our lifetimes, and we do that in the context of community in the local church, members of His household. Verses 11 through 12 says, says this, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Remember that in this new church that the Lord is saving both Jew and Gentile. The majority are Gentiles. And historically, for centuries, Jews would have used that word uncircumcised as this derogatory term toward a Gentile to say, Hey, 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 you're an outsider. You're an outsider. You're not part of God's covenant family. You're separated. You're over there. You're disconnected. And Paul says that Gentiles were excluded from citizenship. They were without hope. They were without the Lord. He's painting again this dismal picture of separation, just as verses 1 through 3 did vertically in our relationship with the Lord. And then verse 13. But now, the shift again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Where once there was separation, now there's reconciliation. And it's all because of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. He bridged the gap. He made a way. Not just for believers to be brought near to the Creator in relationship, but toward one another in the Father's new family. Jew and Gentile now united in Christ. Once there was distance, now there's nearness. Our life and community with one another should be marked by nearness. Relational nearness with one another, because that's who we are now. And then verses 14 through 17. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Now Paul wants us to see that life in the community of faith, where once it was marked by hostility, now it should be marked by peace. Because again, thanks be to Christ, this is who we are now. He mentions peace four times in those verses. Because before, in the chapter of who we were before Christ, there was hostility. Hostility between one another. And he's talking about talking about Jew and Gentile. There was an actual wall that divided the Gentiles saying in the Jewish temple, saying, you worship over there, we'll worship over here. But God, Isaiah prophesies in 
Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus will be born and come as a prince of peace. And seven centuries later, after that prophecy, Jesus is born in the flesh, lives the perfect life, dies in the place of sinners, and the veil in the the temple in that moment is torn in two. The separation is torn down. Christ, the all-sufficient sacrifice, dies for all who will trust in him, including both Jew and Gentile. The law of Moses would have also been a cause of hostility between the two groups because the law made this really clear distinction between Jew and Gentile, saying, well, you're unclean, we're clean, so you're going to eat over there, for instance, and we're going to eat over here. But God, Jesus himself, says in Matthew 5 that he has come to fulfill the law, ushering in a new covenant of grace, not law, ending the system of law with its regulations that led to separation. Christ crucified is what brought them together. It's what brings the New Testament to this day, the New Testament church, together. Christ crucified. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. He comes. For what reason? Paul writes in verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. Jew and Gentile united in Christ. Notice it's not the combining of two people. It's the creation of a new people. The church, no longer defined by earthly similarities or differences, no longer defined by race and family heritage and backgrounds, but rather defined by our Lord and Savior. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says this, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is who we are now, church. Apart from the saving and transforming grace of God, we were marked by hostility and division and separation. But now, life and community in the local church is marked by pursuing peace when there's hostility. And seeking to reconcile relationships that are broken and strained because that's what Jesus has done for us. And that shapes our life among one another. Brothers and sisters, it is a beautiful, God-glorifying moment and season when two people have humbled themselves and sought reconciliation and restoration to a relationship that was once broken. Whether you're talking marriage or parent-child relationships, siblings, co-workers, members in a church, members in the larger body of Christ. It's a beautiful, God-glorifying moment when that happens because it reveals that inward identity in us. It says, well, this is who I am now. I'm a peacemaker. This is who I am now. I I seek to restore relationships because that's what Christ has done for us. My life's not going to be marked by hostility and division. That's not who I am anymore. I'm in Christ now, and so... I'm called to peace. In verses 18 through 22, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, 
in him. You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. So no longer foreigners, but now family, family, fellow citizens, members of God's household. And brothers and sisters, your citizenship in the kingdom, it's permanent. You're not on a temporary visa. In Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, believers are now, we now share a a common eternal bloodline. We share an an eternal inheritance that's not fading or diminishing or going to go bad. This new life that we've been raised to together as his people is built on an eternal foundation. Christ is that cornerstone. The cornerstone, when laid perfectly, determines the strength, the stability of the building that will rise from it. And so Christ is our cornerstone because that's going to ensure that the local church is going to withstand whatever season it walks through. And it's in Him that we are joined. Christ is central to the church because it's His church. Verses 21 and 22, again, in Him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. We are joined together in Him for a purpose, loved ones, so that we'll grow up into Him who is the head, so so that we'll live a life of good works that glorify Him. The Spirit dwells in His people, the church, in the hearts who have trusted in Him. It is a good, good picture that we're looking at this passage in the midst of being outside today. Not contained by buildings, not contained by walls, reminding us the church is not a building. The Lord is certainly building, but He's building His people. His people. A people who will gather, but then also scatter and be on mission the other six days of the week. A people who were once living for the world and the devil and our own flesh, but now living for Him. A people who were once separated, but now have been joined and reconciled. A people who were who were once marked by hostility and now pursuing peace. A people who were once distant, now near. A people who were once foreigners and now family. Church, He's building us together. Paul says it twice there in verses 21 and 22. Together, all these various members of the body, united in His love, founded in Him, being put together, fit together for His glory. No longer for the glory of the individual member, but for the one who unites them, who is at work in and through them. During the years that our daughter was going to school at uh, Moody Bible at, uh, in downtown Chicago, over those four years, we saw this massive building going up, stretching the entire width of a city block. The building was going to contain condos and offices and retail space, and after four years, it still wasn't done. It took them what seemed like forever to get the piers and the, and the foundation work done, but foundations matter. If you get that wrong, the building collapses. They had pictures on the fence showing, here's what the building's going to look like. Here's what it's going to contain. Here's who's building it. Here's the good that it's going to bring to the neighborhood and the community. And, and over those four years, you, slow, you, you saw it slowly taking shape. They had stretches where progress seemed to go quickly. Floors are getting put on really quickly. Foundation time seemed like it lingered. Seemed to the outside eye, to the common eye, we're like, what are they doing? Are they doing anything? 
progress at times seemed really fast outwardly. Other times progress seemed slow. But in both those times, what was happening behind that fence is, is the building was being built. It was most certainly developing and strengthening. At times, it was just more internal or foundational. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of his body, the Lord is building us together. So whether you've been here for 18 years or come the last 18 months, or maybe this is your first Sunday, he's building us together. Christ is our cornerstone. That will never change. That will never change. It will never be about anyone else or anything else other than Jesus Christ crucified and him at our cornerstone. And from that rock-solid, eternal, living foundation, the Lord is building a people to be a holy temple, to be on mission for him, doing good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. And over time, through seasons where the outward fruit can be really seen, you, you walk by, you're like, boy, all these things are happening. I can just see it. And then other seasons where you're thinking, I don't see a lot of outward fruit. But the Lord is most certainly at work. It just is more internal. In both those seasons, the living church is growing up into Jesus. And the watching world goes by. And our prayer, my prayer, is that they would see, not us, but they would see Jesus. And they would see, oh, here's what the Lord's people are doing. And here's the good that they're bringing to the community and to the world. That they see and hear of the one who's doing the building. And that's not us. It's Jesus Christ. And the Father then will get the praise as the church goes out and does good works in his name. The church is to stand like a city on a hill, revealing that when we gather and when we come together, that the Lord is uniting and joining us, not because of earthly reasons, but all because of Jesus Christ. He is who saves us, reconciles us, grows us together, and then sends us out on a mission empowered by His Spirit to go and make disciples. At Crosspoint, our, our mission statement, we say this, that we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live devoted to Him and dedicated to one another and then driven to reach more people with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone for, who believes, the Jew first, and then also the Gentile. All because of God's grace, all because of His mercy, grace, and love for the Lord, creating in Him a new people, a church. We are not who we used to be. We've been changed. We've been given a new identity in Him. We've been brought together. We are now a people for His own possession. A people who will spend the rest of our lives declaring His goodness, His truth, and that He's called us out. Called us out, no longer to live for the things of the dark, but called to live for Him and walk in the light. Father God, thank You that in Christ, we are now near, no longer distant. We are now at peace with you and with one another, no longer marked by hostility. And we are no longer foreigners, whether it be to you or to one another, but we are family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you that you saw us in our separation, 
And you did the work of reconciling us, drawing us to yourself, and joining us in relationship with you, and then joining us to your family, your worldwide family throughout all history. Christ crucified, we are grateful for that truth. And I pray that you, Jesus Christ, would be the cornerstone of this church, and you would get the glory, you would get the praise, and that as people interact with your church, whether gathered or scattered, that ultimately they would see and hear of you and you alone. No longer bringing glory to the individual, but bringing glory to you and you alone. May you be faithful to continue to cause the growth as we plant and water. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.